This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Card carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Uh, the next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post game podcast. This is Kate Massey, host of Warden Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132 every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Guys, happy 2019 to you. Got the whole crew in here. I think some of you are teaching. I think I'm teaching. First yeah. day of class. First day of class around here. Or did we have it yesterday? Nope. Today's the day. <laughs> well, good. No, that's a great question to ask right at the start of the semester, by the way. I I'm not teaching. I managed to burden myself, overburden in the fall, which is well, why I missed so much of our walking show. Walking out of our show halfway well, through. Well, you're going to have to carry I'm us gonna carry, for the next like, few months here. Although, you know, you know what this means, that when you're not teaching, you have more availability to travel. So Yeah, so we're going to lose you for other reasons. But I think, sure. I think I'm pretty, pretty strong on the schedule. Yeah, no, we're, we have a lot of, we have a, we have a solid, we have a solid crew for the next couple of months. So looking forward to it. Gentlemen, there are a few things bouncing around in the world of sports. Sadly, sadly, tragically, there's been no college football, but mm. there have another thing. What That's has caught your eyes? Can, can, I, can I say something? I want to start. I watched all the playoff games. Yeah. First what, time in my life. What has life. gotten into you? I've gotten interested. I've been modeling. I've been, I've been Predicting. I'm super. I've been, I'm, I'm super happy I'm, to hear I'm really, that. By the really, way, it's, I'm enjoying I was watching the game. Talk football for about two hours. Today, so. <laughs> well, I'm actually so I, I'm in, I'm doing that. So I really enjoyed watching all four games. I, I did the Eagles lost, which was I was pulling for the Eagles. Um, I don't have, I have of, nothing interesting um, to say about the game that you don't well, really know. I, I, I think I think there's one thing at least strategic strategery we can talk about. <laughs> um, is uh, that uh, I think at the end of the game, though I, I really respect Doug Peterson's coaching in general. I think he, I, I love his aggressive style, and obviously last year's Super Bowl, it was mm-hmm. on full display. But I think he really messed up at the end of that uh, Saints game um, by try, by rushing uh, their play calling at the end. They they basically were scrambled. They, they had the ball with a little bit over two minutes left, right. and they were marching down the field, and I thought to kind of score, like, you know, a, a touchdown end, to end of the game touchdown, and the game would be over. Um, but they kept kind of going, like, hurry up, and they, they, they did, you know, a lot of no huddle, and they basically especially rushed to play right before the two-minute morning, that ended up being that interception. I mean, it's not like, you know, well, that, right that interception, you know, may have happened regardless, but I just thought it was a weird kind of, even if they had scored under that strategy, they would have left Drew Brees way too much time yeah, to win the game. So I I noticed the same thing that Shane did. So let's forget about outcome for a second. I mean, the ball went through the receiver's hands. That happens. Yep. Doesn't Apparently it never had happened before to Alshon Jeffrey in the playoffs, but it happens. There's no reason for them to call a play yeah. before the two-minute warning there. They're already at the 30-yard line of the Saints. Time is going to be no issue. If anything, time is against them. As a matter of fact, scoring too quickly, you're almost confident. I mean, they would have gone up if they'd hit the extra point by one. You know Drew Brees, if you leave him a minute, it's going to drive down the field yeah. and take a field goal. As a matter of fact, you should want to eat up. Matter of fact, I was already thinking, all right, the Eagles going to let it run to the two-minute warning. It's second and seven or eight. They may even run a play knowing they have two more plays because they got to yeah. eat 35 yeah, or 40. I, 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 thought that, I, I thought that was obvious. I was kind of cheering for the Saints, actually, in that game, and I was yelling at the TV what? that huh. they should let them score. 
that the Saints should let him score from the thirty-five. Well, I mean, you know, with it, you know, yeah, we're yeah, like within, within the next no, couple no, 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 I said I thought the Eagles were going to score, but uh-huh. no way am I letting them score from the thirty-five yard line. And we saw in that game. How many times? I mean, teams weren't scoring touchdowns left and right in no. that game. There was, by the way, no guarantee, even if Alshon Jeffrey catches that ball, that the Eagles are getting the ball no, in but the I mean, end zone if, there. If, if Alshon Jeffrey catches that ball and they're down at like the 15 or something like that, at that point I would have actually, if I was New Orleans, let him score. Oh, wow. Wow. Give Drew Brees a minute and 30 seconds. Okay, so what do you think? His all he has to do is get a field goal. I think this is an interesting. It comes up a lot, and fans often feel this way, and, and coaches and players rarely do. I think it's oh, a very fair oh, question. I, I feel like that was a, no. that was a slight. No, no, no. no, no he means exactly no. the opposite. You say fans think that this is think, not a good idea, but the coaches think it's smart. No, other, other, the other way around. The other way around. It's not uncommon, I think, for, for fans to say, let, you know, they're at the five-yard yeah, line. There's right. a minute left. It's inevitable, so why not just let them score? The thing is, it's not quite inevitable. No, I mean, but, right. But, I was also could, screaming at the TV in that say, Seattle-New England Super Bowl that New England should let them yeah, score, right, too, exactly, right? And I mean, exactly. right. But there's something, there's something so against the ethic of the game. That, to let that happen, I, th- I think that you know we've seen a couple of occasions where that as where teams have let them score, mm-hmm. and and it's just so odd when they do. You know, they almost lay down and let them score. Generally, they're not going to let them. And th- but th- there are these exceptions where if they had, it, they they have managed to stop them. Yeah, and. I don't know. You end up, those, those I think receive disproportionate weight. You're just going through a very simple risk neutral expected value calculation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think but I think Shane's yeah, point right. is important, which is that the Eagles should have wanted to use clock yeah, there. No, and the play, right. by the way, well, the announcer I, said that as much. I didn't know something bad was going to happen. Obviously, the ball going through his hands. Who knew? When the play was, I'm, I'm looking at the play clock, 205, 204, 203, and then he snaps the ball, and I'm like, what's going on? Like, I even wondered when the ball, like, was this a real play? Like, was it a false start? Like, what's happening on this play? And then I saw the outcome of the play. I just could not believe the Eagles would were try snapping and sneak the ball before, before the two-minute two warning. One thing we've not considered is an advantage of hurry-up offenses is that you keep the defense from being able to get set as well. Yeah, and they can't, it seemed they can't, not, yeah. In I mean, that case, I, the offense looked less set. But yes, no, I, I agree. And that that's presumably the logic behind it is that this hurry-up it kind of felt like was working in terms of keeping the offense off its game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, defense, sorry. Uh, Audie, so, missed our, our NFL analyst. Yeah, well, I want to actually talk about the, the all the games and, and just reflect on what we said last week. And, it, and so we talked about momentum and recency with the Colts, with Dallas, with the Eagles, with Nick Foles. And all those bets went away. Mm-hmm. We didn't make bets on them. We didn't say that necessarily so advantages. We, we talked about them. Um, and... Uh, they just, I mean, the the, the yeah. eleven and one Colts. The you the, guys uh, were you guys. Sorry, we, we I missed about it last you, week. you guys were predicting Dallas over LA. No, we no, weren't no, predicting. No, no, no. no we, we were just predicting. About... Just talking about what is the impact of those of the of no, the that's streaks. Right. But now, now to be fair, because we weren't all saying, "Look, they're all hot." We were we were talking no, about we were. the analysis of, and that's it right. wasn't just momentum. We were talking about non stationarity. That's right. And you have to consider that in your models. And does it matter? So I think we had we kind never of a, came to a conclusion. Um, and the only thing that I was saying is, I think that. That I thought that maybe that Nick Foles was definitely not the average Nick Foles for this playoff game, and then that's an interesting thing. Whether can we debate that? I mean, what what kind of Nick I don't Foles even know what the see? average Nick Foles um, is. I, well, I think with Nick Foles, the average is a poor estimate the of poor Nick Foles, Nick, right? I mean, he's, he's, he's currently a mixture of amazing. But what, you know, what and I was awful. watching is is that 
you need, I'm, I mean, I'm certainly no N- N- NFL analyst, particularly of quarterbacks, but it was obvious to me that Drew Brees is a much better quarterback, and just by eye test. And <laughs> you it, think? I mean, <laughs> and it's hard to see. I mean, if you go to a baseball game and I asked you to evaluate a pitcher um, who's, and you're not a, a not a aficionado, you're not going to really be able to tell the difference between a, an elite pitcher and just an average pitcher. They both throw ridiculously hard. They have great movement. They, they throw more or less where they want. Yeah, it's because it's, it's, it's a little bit more of a constrained thing that you're viewing there with the, with pitching. I mean, like, you That's know, right. the, and, and so the, the difference between average and elite for pitchers is is very narrow, right. basically. And, and it'll be outcome-based, and you'll see yeah. that the better pitchers are better. Mm-hmm. But you, I was just watching just the, 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 mag, the sewer magnitude yeah, no, and I mean, velocity coming out of his hands, the accuracy. Foles just seems to, be, to what, toss it. I mean, well, maybe am be, I wrong? I mean, what is it? To be fair, I mean, I, I'm no Foles expert, but he was not as sharp or as he was lucky, not. whichever it was, in that game as he had been before. I mean, if you'd watch some of his That's other true. games, oh, yeah. like the you'd Super be like, this last guy's year is unbelievable. Yeah, he you really just would have thought he's completely brilliant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, no, I mean, I, but I, I agree with your general assertion, which is that when you, you can really kind of, a quarterback has enough of a range of sort of activity or whatever you want to call it, that it is kind of visually easier to, to, to kind of separate out the really elite well, let me, performances let me from average Nadi, performance. Which, which is very related. So, this is why I've always been amazed by a Tom Brady, Drew Brees, etc. Because here's what I mean. Let's imagine, we could all imagine the Saints losing this week. And it's possible they'll lose to the Rams. Of course yeah, of it's course. possible. Oh, yeah. Oh, but now it's it, getting fun. But, but <laughs> it won't be because, I don't think it will. It's unlikely to me because Drew Brees plays horribly. They have a, He has a terrible game. He misses open receivers, etc. It might be because the Rams' defense puts a lot of pressure on him, etc. Can a quarterback win enough consecutive games against top teams if you are inconsistent. That's the problem you Mm -hmm. face. And so you know Drew Brees is going to play at a minimum level that's allowing you to win the game. You know Tom Brady, even if he has, I'll call it a mediocre Tom Brady game, he's going to play well enough to give you an opportunity to win the game. If Nick Foles has a bad game, by the way, I don't think Nick Foles had a good game at all. He missed a lot of wide open receivers. He's he not necessarily – his bottom end yeah. performance may not be good enough to win you the game. Well, and so to me, I'm just saying, it's not about winning one game. You have to win a number of consecutive games, and can that person get it done? Can you, let me try just the opposite argument. And okay. Let's see if we can reconcile them. You need a quarterback whose upside is far enough in the distribution that they can take you through these – games and, against great teams. So, for example, you know, we saw it with Foles. Foles' upside is clearly enough. When he has those games, it is enough. We've seen it with Flacco. Seemingly mm-hmm. like a league, yep. a league average quarterback Eli at Manning. the top of his game. Eli, I don't, Eli Manning, yeah. Eli Manning that can, can, can put together a run, as <laughs> it turns so, out, but it's not that great in general. So I'm offering exactly the yeah. counter hypothesis that since the Breezes and the Bradys of the world are so rare, what you need is, is well, look, give up on that. What you need is at least someone who's got the upside. Yeah. So I'll play the opposite side of that. And I'm not saying I disagree with you. Right. It just I'm depends. not saying no, I agree. No, no. So, so here's what I will say. Are you building something for a long period of time? Meaning, to me, if I were drafting a quarterback or evaluating a quarterback, I would be thinking about, in some sense, I want to draft someone who's got a top end, but I more care about at least a minimum bottom end, because they're coin flips. I want a lot of coin flips, and so I want somebody who's going to get me to the playoffs 10 years, 12 years in their career, as opposed to some 16 years, as opposed to somebody who, you're right, but let's remember... 
if one or two plays goes differently, Joe Flacco does not have a Super Bowl victory. He's not even flipped the coin in many other years. So I'd rather have somebody who's got a very high bottom end than stretch for somebody. Okay, okay. So, That's just my uh, opinion. So uh, you said you didn't necessarily agree, so I'm granting you that you may not fully agree with what you said. No, I agree uh, with what I said. I don't agree I, with what you said. No, you prefaced your whole thing by saying, I don't know that I, I believe this or not, but here's a claim. And I think that's an interesting cl- a claim to, to consider the, because you don't get that for free. This is the thing. Yeah. You don't get your higher floor for free. You have to take it at the cost of some ceiling. And you're saying you're willing to take that trade off. Th- that is not, what I'm saying. It's not. That's not clear to me at all. And, and, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I, again, so, it, can, it, I give, can I give one example yeah. real quick? Clemson this year with their quarterback change, they had one of the top freshman quarterbacks in the country last year. But they, over time, decided he didn't quite have the upside to get them past the Alabamas of the world. And so, in a pretty ballsy move midseason this year, they went with the, this year's top freshman quarterback because of, and it was it – was, this is too much of a simplification, but it, it, it's kind of like they went there because his upside could get them past and, the And I agree with that, but I would say the difference is, for that, you have to win one game. To get the NFL quite, title, well, they have to beat Alabama. Well, you got You could. They could probably beat every other game along the way. And they could probably beat. Yeah. No, no. I'm saying they with, could probably with their beat previous mo- quarterback. Yes, they could probably beat most of the other teams with their previous quarterback, and the data supports that. All I'm saying is, it's just a difference of opinion. I would invest in somebody that, given Shane's comment on for four years here on Wharton Moneyball, that a lot of these games are coin flips. I'd rather get me somebody that's going to give me a lot of coin flips. Someone who's got a high bottom end will give me a lot of coin flips. And that's just the way I would play it. So isn't that player right now like Philip Rivers? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so let's contrast this because Foles is going to be on the market. Yes. And so Foles is, I think, the opposite. Foles is the guy with the potential high upside. Yeah. But doesn't has the low ceiling. So is he going to get a big – I mean, who's who's a a good prospect? I think he'll probably get a a big contract. A young Rivers Rivers or Nick Foles? Oh, I would take a young Rivers, definitely. I mean, that guy's a Hall of Fame quarterback. But – Yes. But I, I, I just think Rivers doesn't have that high upside. Is that the claim? Yeah, he's got he's got upside. He's yeah. definitely yeah. Got I upside. mean, I think we've given Eric too easy. A no, yeah, maybe that was. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. We need somebody who is who, Eli Manning. Is that better for you? No, he's more foals ish. Yeah, he's he's too yeah, foolish. Oh, he's yeah. got because of high he's upside variant. So is there someone who's kind of like rockish, but not with? Uh, how about uh, how about Alex Scott? Smith? I don't I don't know. That D- was D- the name. Alex that I was, Smith. That was the name I was thinking about. Was Alex uh. Smith. And so, you know, he's going to get you to the playoffs in lots and lots of years. Oh, this is it, great. Yeah, yeah that okay. would have been the name I, that was the okay. name I was thinking okay. of. Okay, Alex Smith versus Nick can, Foles, and you want Alex Smith? I want Alex Smith over a long period of time. Oh, that's it. Yeah. That's so, what I, that was my claim again. I don't want Alex Smith over okay. any given season. Over a 10-year period, I want lots of coin flips. I'd rather have Alex Smith than Nick Foles. And yes. this is a great kind of comparison because, you know, he's a fairly recent free agent, essentially free agent or, or a recent, like, contract. So he might be kind of a good comparison in terms of what the contract Nick Foles gets. Well, let's, let's, let's take it the next step then and ask, if you had Alex Smith, do you stop searching for quarterback? Do you stop drafting quarterbacks? Do you move up for the you know, Patrick Mahomeses of the world if, you give, if you're given the opportunity? And I think the answer is you don't stop, that, that Alex Smith is not your franchise quarterback. You're just you know, put him in place and not worry about the rest of the – only worry about the rest of the roster for a while. Well, obviously, you know, if we just think about a distribution of play, it would be lovely to get somebody whose bottom end is higher than Alex Smith's bottom end and, and whose top oh, end well, is of better. Course. And no, no, but that's Pareto dominance is terrific. No, no, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. But, that's, so, but ma- that's too easy, of yeah. course. So the question is, but are, are you, at what cost are you are you willing to 
sacrifice no, I think, part of the rest of your roster. Kate, I think your, your and, point is terrific. I mean, the real question is, do you draft or do you stay out? But the, what I'm, I'm kind of pushing Eric on the extent to which he's happy with this quarterback. Yeah. And like, okay, fine, but are you sitting there? Are you going to continue? Are you going to bear some cost to improve it? I think the answer also is we live in a world in the NFL, at least, of salary cap. So the question is, what am I paying this quarterback? Yeah, yeah, it all comes and, at a cost. Yeah, what am I paying? Yeah, well, that's what you said as well. I agree. What are we paying this quarterback? Mm-hmm. And let me just say, if you could have an elite defense... And take put that money and invest it in an elite defense, and then all of a sudden you have a quarterback like an Alex Smith or like Joe Flacco, you can absolutely win the Super Bowl. So it's just a question is how much are you going to have to pay to, in some sense, get someone, whether it's Pareto dominant or upside. But again, yeah. I would still rather have someone that has a, a really good – Philip Rivers is a great example yeah. of somebody like that. <laughs> well, he also Al, has I'll a strong Al, upside. Al Smith, I think, Alex was Smith. Alex Smith. Yeah, so I, but I, I think now we've settled into a nice way to think about it. It's like what, if you're going to have an Alex Smith, you, got, you have to reallocate those resources in other places in the team. If you, if you have a Nick Foles, you might be able to – it's just a higher variance strategy. So this is Wharton Moneyball. You guys can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton one eight four four nine four two. 7866. Hit us up on Twitter. Another way to reach us at W Moneyball. Whole crew in here this morning. Cade Shane, Adi, and Eric. Odd, you're the you're the NFL expert th- today, so keep on walking well, us through I'm, the rest, actually, the rest I'm, of the week. I'm going to bring you in. Well, through the rest of the weekend, I guess I can I can point out that the favorites did win. Uh, I think all four won. And we want your deep body winder I have, insights. So <laughs> no, everything happened Were the way you it was supposed to. Are you in love with Patrick Mahomes? And uh, the I Kansas certainly City am. I How can you not be? Uh, right? I, I think it's really it's going to be exciting because we have two old old geezers going against the two youngers, and it's just really yeah. it's terrific. And I, mean, I have to say, I would ha- I'm, I'm still placing my money on the old geezers. Well, that's uh, a really. I'm really curious what you guys think. At the end of the show, we'll talk about our picks for the weekend. But that we'll Pats, talk about Chiefs that. matchup. Well, oh boy! Here's what I'll say. I thought one of the things that was interesting, thanks to our producer Matt Dats for putting this on our rundown. I thought it was the stats he gave on if you took Patrick Mahomes' season and ranked it against seasons that Tom Brady has yeah. had. Like, for example... You mean his, all 37 of his seasons? Exactly. <laughs> well, his completion percentage at 66%, if it was for Brady, would be his fourth best. His passing yards per game would be Brady's second best. His yards for attempt would be Brady's best. His passing touchdowns would be tied for Brady's best. And his passer rating would be second for Brady. So if you just norm how good a season did Mahomes have in comparison to the greatest quarterback of all time... This would it's be an really elite impressive. season, yeah. even for Tom Brady. Yeah. And that, to me, is remarkable to say for somebody. And that was, was one of the themes. Three years old. Yeah, it was one of the yeah. themes I wanted to talk about is, you know, how do we know if any of these four teams are good? Like, maybe, like you say, well, the favorites won. You're right, the favorites won. But maybe they're all, all four not. Won. I know, but I'm saying maybe they're all not very good. Like, we said, wow, they beat the momentum of the Colts. They beat the momentum of the Cowboys. They beat the, the momentum, momentum of the Eagles. Eagles. Yeah. Maybe none of the teams are that great. They're just basically better than these other teams. But then you start to look at some of the performances that happen. I mean, Mahomes had an all-time great season. I don't think these are... Well, I would think you would say the following, Shane. Regardless of whether the Patriots win this game, how would you rank among, let's call it, the 12 to 15 extraordinarily competitive Patriots teams that you've seen over the last years? How would you rate this team in comparison to the other Patriots teams? Um, The bottom third, right? Yeah, uh, certainly the bottom half. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I that's a good frame of reference because that p- potentially says that the other teams are just not that great. But that this was year. my point. Yeah. That was my point. 
And you agree the or, Patriots or, could win the Super Bowl. Or I think we are seeing, again, in terms of person, I, I just, I, I think we're seeing how important coaching and scheme and all this type of stuff and taking advantage of matches, what the Patriots kind of do is. I mean, I, th- I think in terms of personnel, this is definitely not one of the best Patriots teams I've watched over the last 20 years. They're still in the Final Four because, you know, they... They have a very good coach, and they are able to take advantage me, of matchups. Let me ask you a question I, related to the coach, that just to build on yeah. your point. I, st- I have started to think that people talk about Belichick, Belichick's going to leave when Brady leaves. Do you get a point that Belichick almost is going to want to prove that he can do it without Brady? That Brady retires. Brady could is going to retire at some point in the next oh, three to true. five years. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Belichick stays on to show, you know what? Well, I, I, I hope that's the a... scenario as opposed to him like going to the New York Giants or something like that and then winning like <laughs> three Super Bowls with them. Maybe Brady's trying to hang on so that he can outlast Belichick. Well, that, yeah. that could be. Nah, I'm putting my money on Belichick. I hope so, they ride uh, off to the sunset together, but I mean, I, I yeah, maybe. Uh, I mean, certainly I, I can't even guess at the the sort of psychology or ego involved there, whether Belichick kind of does want to sort of prove that he can win a Super Bowl without Brady. I mean, I think everybody kind of would thinks thinks that already, that, I, you know, it's not can necessary. Can I go back to your comparison of Mahomes and Brady? Is it fair, given that, from what I've read, the and you can see it, the the Chiefs and the modern, you know, these young college are, are really super pass-heavy teams, and Brady's traditionally over many years with the Patriots is much more well-rounded. So is it fair to compare a quarterback's best performance for a, as a passer in a well-rounded offensive so, scheme so, versus one that's really pass-heavy where you, have, you put up gaudy numbers? Yeah, so just as a statistical principle, I compared them, well, the data's here, on an absolute level. Yes. But maybe what we should be looking at is as a percentage of the offense, as a let's norm it. Like maybe another example would be some of these Brady years might be in years where the offense in the league as a whole was 30% less. And so Brady's numbers in comparison yeah, well, are greater than, I mean, I'm just saying or, I agree or, with you. you know, I mean, I think it's it's only in a few diff- in a few seasons that Brady has had kind of a wide receiver of the quality of Tyreek Hill, for example. You know, his Randy Moss years might be a better comparison. As I think an example what's also, of, some, of, I think, of trying to kind of get at a better comparison. I think what's also interesting here is, just to even complement Mahomes a little bit more, I didn't say I'm taking Brady's best season. I'm taking the best stat from all of the seasons yeah. and yeah. putting it together. Yeah. So this is I how he was his first season. Is Correct. Yeah. So this is, yeah. I mean, it's remarkable. We're cherry picking the seasons for Brady, but for Mahomes, it's no, all in the I, same I, season. I mean, I've seen Mahomes, you know, throw sidearm for like 25 yards. Oh, right no, he's, I mean, he's, he's a baseball pitcher. I've never seen Brady do that. Mahomes, <laughs> Mahomes could have been a baseball pitcher for sure. I mean, his dad was. Yeah, uh, and he mm. played at Tech as well. Well, let me ask you, is there anybody, if you're the Chiefs right now, you can trade Patrick Mahomes for any quarterback in the uh, NFL, I, Carson Wentz, Jared Goff, all these guys that were drafted number one. No, basically, no, nobody. no. He's, he's the MVP this year, and he is the MVP right now. I mean, no, he's, you do. He, you do. Wouldn't. There's no trade you could make. I mean, one to one trade you could make that you would trade Mahomes. No, no. I mean, also, he's in his second year of his contract, so this no. get all this surplus. Also. Name me one player in the NFL who's been more fun to watch over oh, the last I know, right? whatever it's, 10 I mean, years. That's the Tell thing, me the like, last time there was a player in the NFL as fun yeah. to watch as him. Give me one. No. I, mean, I think Walter Payton would qualify. Barry Sanders Barry would Sanders. qualify. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, definitely. for a while, I might say, I just... Uh, I mean, the, I kind of watched actual, Gron- I Gronkowski s- run over people for a while. was fun there. <laughs> that might Bo be Jackson for a couple of... Yeah. Bo Jackson for 15 minutes. Yeah. yeah. I was, yeah, I was saying, well, I was back to the 15-minute ones. I would say a couple of the receivers the Chiefs have had. 
you know, uh, Tyreek Hill and just the guys that Mahomes yeah, is throwing no, to. Sure. And I would also say possibly the guys on the Saints, you yeah. know, Kamara. And that's a, I'm, I'm just saying for short periods of time, they're exciting to watch. Oh, yeah. You know, you can say the, Darren Sproles in his prime was this guy. I mean, you're like, how can this guy make everybody miss? Good, De- good, Deion good. Sanders? You know, right? Good, good, good. There have been some of these. Matt offers our producer offers probably the right answer, which is Michael Vick. Yeah. So at the quarterback position, you know, he you're going to watch people watch football just to see Michael Vick play, and that's where Pat Mahomes is right now. But I want to go back to your suggestion, Eric, which I think is provocative because the instinctive reaction is, "What are you talking about?" This idea that maybe none of these teams are that good this year. We, you know, which is what we were saying a little bit before, as the as the playoffs were opening up, there didn't seem to be such a wide spread. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not as good. It just no, means it's right. more competitive. Yeah. So you know, five thirty eight uses Elo. That's right for their power rankings across a lot of sports, and one of the reasons they do that is you can compare over time very easily. Now it's a it's a it's a simple model, so you leave a lot out. It's not going to do quite as well, but you can get that cross period. Comparison. We can bring a little bit of data from Massey Peabody to look at how teams compare by the same model over time. So, for example, with this year in the in the in college football, we knew that Alabama had snuck up higher in our rankings than any team since we've been doing college football. So we could say in our data, according to our numbers, they are literally the best team we've seen. Oh, and by the way, this is what kept it interesting. Clemson's like the second best team. The only and, and about a point apart. And, and, and only, and no more than a point apart. So we can look at the numbers this year and say, okay, how do the teams stack up? And I, the short answer is, I think this, the NFC teams are where we typically see top teams. They're near like plus nine, plus 10 versus an average team. But the AFC teams are a cut below. And so if you're looking at New England, you know, right now we have them the fourth best in the league, and only this weekend did they sneak up to that. And they're like plus six or something. So where have they been in the past? I am not doing a comprehensive look, but I just went back and grabbed a random, like the 2016 team. So two years ago, they were head and shoulders above other teams in the league, but by like three points. Mm-hmm. They're point nine. They're 9.65. So they're right about where New Orleans is this year. We could do that kind of thing. I think what it's going to show you is that New England is off a little bit, mm-hmm. but the top team is probably not that far off the pace. Right, right. And that that kind of agrees with, you know, my intuition. I mean, I, I honestly, it's all gravy from this point on. I, I did not expect this particular New England team to be in the Final Four. I'm, I'm thrilled they are, but uh, well, I don't. Given you say that, who did you expect them to lose? Like, I expect them to be here. I don't expect them. They might. I don't expect them to win the game against Kansas City. They might. They certainly have beat them once this year. Who did you think was going to well, beat New I, I England get, when New England was going to be at home, likely, in the round of eight, let's call it? Who was going to beat them? I, I mean, I guess it depends where, where in the season you asked me that oh. question, right? But I honestly, you know, it, it, halfway point in the season, I always said Pittsburgh. I always said Pittsburgh against Kansas City. I saw Pittsburgh as a better team in terms of personnel, but, you know, obviously it kind of fell apart for them. And that that can happen. Yeah, I was just referring to it seemed like a trajectory where the Patriots were going to be the two seed. Mm -hmm. So I was just commenting which three, four, five team was going to go into New England to beat them to prevent them from getting to the final four. Once the playoffs started, I mean... No, not even once the playoffs started. I never believed that Pittsburgh was going to have a better final record necessarily than New England to be able... I mean, Kansas City looked like they were going to be the one all season long. If you don't believe New England was going to be in the final four, the only way that can happen is someone goes into New England and beats them in New England. So this is where I... And it is true that, I mean, that, that... I, I, this is the thing I've kind of come to realize about New England in the playoffs that I, I guess 
I sort of knew about but didn't have the kind of stats on is it is amazing the disparity in their home and road records in the playoffs. Um, I mean, I also think this is another fun Patriot fact. They have played more in more Super Bowls than they have road playoff games. They've played in eight Super Bowls and only seven (laughs) road playoff games in this sort of era. And they're only, I think, three and four in those road playoff games. They played seven road, or, or this is their seventh. So, so they have a road playoff game coming up. Is that that's right? Yeah, right. And, and so that, yeah, that's right. Wow, yeah. So, so they are they are they are behind by what four points? Maybe is that what the model says in this coming game? Uh, but only field, home field. So that right, the, the, most of it is we, from home we, field. We observed this thing last week, which was nice. That um, the two the two better teams aren't more likely to make the Super Bowl because they had to go through each other. And we had the same thing this weekend, where the two better teams almost neck and neck. Um, are in the NFC, and then the AFC teams are equally equally matched, and so the difference in the spread is really just coming from. So home your field. home field is what do you have home field minus three or two, minus two point eight half two, two and a half. So you'll like you, you'll have what, whatever NFC team makes it through, you'll have them as about a three point favorite right. over the yeah. AFC yeah, team. We, we will something like that, and we're right on the line this this week. Yeah, I mean, I clearly um, I, I agree with those numbers, I, but to me, if the New England, if this New England Patriot team goes into Kansas City and wins. And then goes to the Super Bowl and wins. This, to me, would be... I know it's not... It's not like there would be 20, 15-point underdogs or anything like that. It would be something of epic proportion. Because I just don't think this New England team is that good. But I absolutely believe that they could go in. They can absolutely beat Kansas City. And they absolutely could go to the Super Bowl and win that game. That's right. And I I completely agree with you. I see this, this New England team as the worst of these four. Definitely. And... And the worst um, of the New England teams that we've seen very competitive in the Super Bowl. I mean, which New mm-hmm. England team do you think that let's say let's say let's imagine they go into Kansas City and win. Which of the eight Super Bowl teams before this under in the Brady era, we're not going to count the other two yeah. ones. <laughs> did they act do you think this team is better than the 2011 ones? The 2011 one that lost the Giants. Okay? I, I think was a worse team than this one. It had an even because more they lost to the Giants. Well, no, no. I I, I think I I think I can try and take that. I, I've tried to uh, I've, I've blocked that out of my memory anyway, so that's not influencing me. No, um, I I think you, just in terms of uh, both the defense and, and and kind of the talents around uh, Brady, I, I I don't I think this one would maybe beat that 2011 one, but that would be the only one that I think they would. Well, let me ask something. Would you impressed at all by the fact that when the game really mattered, this is what if you're a Patriot fan would encourage you. The Chargers were not a bad offensive team this no. year. And so you watch no, that mean, game, New and when the game, forget that it was 28 points. They didn't give up 28 points. They gave up seven points when the game mattered. Yeah. So if you're thinking that, you're saying, we're playing Kansas City, Kansas City's top offensive team in the league. Why can't, Maybe we'll hold them to No, no, I points. mean, obviously I came out of that L.A. game believing that they could be Kansas City. I'm not sure I went into that L.A. game believing that they but could. But because no, I of mean, the defense. Yes, that's right. I'd be, and, and because I just... You know, I think that was a. They dominated all aspects of that game, and they don't have, I think, particularly superior personnel. So that says to me that, you know, the coaching but, is a but huge. I, but I think the same probably could be said about Kansas City. Mm-hmm. People didn't expect them to handle the Colts the way they did. And so you came out of both games feeling like, oh, maybe these teams are a little more well rounded than we, than we thought. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. If it's not 8 to 10 Eastern, you're catching a replay somewhere, somehow. 
You can still reach out to us. Drop us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Shoot us a, something on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle up there. We take questions. We take taunts. We take suggestions for any of our segments, at WMoneyBall. Or, of course, you can give us a ring, one eight four four wharton one eight four four nine four two. 7866. Whole crew in here this morning. Cade Masty hosting this morning with Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, and Eric Bradlow. Faculty all here at the Wharton School. Longtime collaborators. Glad to have the whole crew. Most of us will be here for most of the winter months, it looks like, according to the schedule. We are rolling into our first guest segment, as we typically do at this point in the show. Joining us, Raphael Poli is joining us. Raphael is head of the Football Observatory. That's European football, meaning soccer. International Center for Sports Studies. These guys are going to bring us up to speed on what's going on right now in the world of soccer and what they're doing in the world of soccer analytics. Raphael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. Hello. Where are you calling in from this morning, Raphael? Yeah, I'm in Switzerland, in the French-speaking part of Switzerland, in Neuchâtel. Ah, fantastic. Well, we appreciate you making time for us. Raphael, we've looked at some of your work. We, we like to try to stay on top of the soccer world. We, we get distracted by American football, so we have to periodically step outside and ask someone who's paying a lot of attention to the soccer world what's going on. Yeah. But you guys also go about it in an interesting way, your analytics um, seem to be pushing some boundaries, which is cool. So we'd like to get a little background on what your organization does, and then eventually we can drop into what's going on in soccer right now. Yeah, we started in 2005. I was a PhD student then in, in economic geography. We tried to understand the migration of football players or soccer players worldwide, especially from Africa. We collected with a French colleague some data on that. We created a database. It was quite uh, unique at this time, and uh, we started to study the demographics a bit of migration, but then the, um, the squad composition, the factor of success, and uh, notably in terms of uh, origins uh, or uh, stability of teams, etc., transfer policies, etc. Then we moved on with more uh, traditional analytics on, on pitch performance of players and, and clubs, uh, using first uh, data produced by different companies. Uh, with our own algorithm also developed since 2009 and 10, and also about the transfer values because you know in soccer there are transfer fees paid um, to uh, sign players and we developed an algorithm which is now uh, quite extensively used by the industry to 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 say the fair price of uh, of a football player terrific this you're talking about two different um components broadly you're talking about player values player migration transfer values and then pitch performance which is more about team performance on the field and um interestingly the the sports analytics around here especially in american football fall broadly under those two categories as well let's take each one in turn so you said your your work began looking at player migration and if people aren't close followers of soccer they may not appreciate how important that is how much migration there is um and how how important it is as an economic lever as well for ownership it 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 seems from a distance at least and i know you get you've written about this writing with much more familiarity it seems like there's just kind of a hierarchy and the better teams are always going to be able to pay more for players and so the mid-level teams and even upper mid-level teams one of their Mm -hmm. reasons for being is to find these good players and then shop them and then sell them at higher values so this is a a fundamental part of soccer economics and and the sport yeah, you are right. It's definitely right. It's a global economy, football, and it turns around a lot of the transfer of football players. There are talents 
a bit everywhere. Of course, some countries developed more talents than others, also for historic reasons, but still uh, you have uh, quite uh, a lot of, uh, of zones where good players are. And uh, these talents have to reach, uh, let's say, the big five European leagues and on the top of that, the Premier League. So you have a transnational value-added chains of transfers where there are, there are a lot of financial stakes for different clubs. Agents also play a, a crucial role, private investor investing on the talent and trying to uh, make a profit out of it uh, through different transfers up until the best, the very best teams in the world because uh, uh, only a few teams Teams, uh, let's say even Barcelona at certain time, big team had a lot of a majority of uh, locally trained players. But uh, most of the time, the players who make up the squads of the biggest teams comes from other countries, uh, other backgrounds, and uh, to, to to be able to reach this level, they have gone through a, a set of different uh, teams uh, throughout the world. Rafael, to the outside, to the outsider, the casual observer. It looks like many of these players are overvalued. The prices that are paid for the top players, one, they're just extraordinary numbers. I mean, the the transfer fees are what we're talking about seventy million, hundred million kind of number. So, on in absolute terms, it's extraordinary. But fine, maybe that's the economics of the sport. But it seems to be that at the top, that teams reliably overbid for these players. Now we're we're all economists are you know are trained in economics in some sense and it's surprising to us that a market could be that inefficient for a long period of time so what you're a real expert on this what's your sense of how efficient or inefficient player valuations are in the soccer transfer market no, I think uh, you are right. Uh, it's not that uh, inefficient uh, if it goes on like this for many years. Of course, there are deals where uh, you have overbid, but then you know perhaps after when, if the players does not perform well. Because the truth is that there is an inflation. In five years' time, uh, the prices have uh, have doubled on the transfer market for soccer players. It means a player who had a fair value of 10 million, the same player five years uh, five years later would have a, t- a 20 million. Uh, so you can imagine a 70 million would be 140 now. So, uh, but this is also because the budgets of the biggest clubs are uh, on the increase, and there is still mm-hmm. a big hope that uh, this will uh, further increase with, uh, of course, the interest from the United States for soccer, as I said before, but also from China, perhaps India. Uh, so there are there is still a room for for a, a growth, and uh, this uh, inflation reflects this uh, good. Uh, let's say mood uh, by the top clubs uh, who also are able to concentrate the money even more than in the past because now, now they are global brands and uh, these, uh, these, uh, these big clubs have uh, bigger budgets and turnover every year so they spend more on, on fees because they are not able to produce themselves the players they need and uh, there is a cascade effect with an inflation also for uh, middle rank teams that uh, receive more money for them players and invest even and more money for uh, players from uh, poorer clubs. So there is a, a cascade effect, but uh, the, the driving force, of course, is this uh, Premier League, English Premier League, or a few other clubs uh, in Europe uh, who, who really put the inflation uh, up every year. Well, this is one, one, one quick follow-up on that. The, the sense has been that the Premier League was really the culprit here, that they so overpay for these players. To what extent does that have an effect on the other big five leagues? Where else do you, are the other leagues as inflated as the Premier League? 
course, the Premier League is 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 the big big driver of this inflation. Uh, but uh, as I say, the, there is a cascade effect because uh, if you say uh, if you are able to sell a player to a Premier League club, you know that you will uh, probably sell it for more uh, money than if it was uh, I don't know an Italian or another club from another country. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. So uh, this is uh, clearly uh, established. Uh, the price depends on the buyer. The more money the buyer has. Uh, to to recruit players, the more the the higher the the fair price would be, which is quite logical because the seller club also know uh, that these clubs uh, have the money to spend, uh, and if they want really your player, then they will uh, overbid. But in the end, of course, this is related to the economics. These clubs have that money, so they are not that indebted. On the contrary, uh, they had uh, quite uh, good figures from a financial perspective in the last few years, the Premier League. Right. So they chose, they are not irrational. They are, they know what they do. Then, of course, they may be wrong sometimes uh, if, they, uh, if they pick up a player who is not really that suitable for their team. But uh, uh, from an economic point of view, they know they need talent and they are able uh, financially to buy this talent. And of course, they put uh, the inflation up. So uh, part of what I think you're arguing for this inflation is is, is kind of, you know, sort of you know, these premier clubs can can get additional exposure and, I guess, panache in, in, in I guess, soccer-developing nations like the United States or China or India. Mm-hmm. Um, has there actually been studies that sort of, like, showed, like, do, do do the clubs with these, you know, kind of big signings, are those the ones that really kind of tend to have the most popularity in, in, in the U.S. and mm-hmm. China and India? Yeah, of course, the, the very top clubs, if you look at the social media accounts, etc., they have a huge, huge, huge uh, notoriety everywhere because, of course, they win the trophies and the trophies gives you notoriety. People want to be associated to successful teams. And this is uh, even more so probably in these markets where there is no traditional local football, very strong. Of course, there is some, but not that strong, so if they want to pick up a favorite team, so we're talking to Raphael Poli. Raphael is the head of football, that's European Football Observatory, the head of the Football Observatory at the International Center for Sports Studies. This is a group of academics started back in 2005. They do statistical analysis of soccer. They are kind of evangelizing statistics in soccer. They study, as we've just been learning from Raphael, they study both the transfer market, which is player valuations and how it moves from you know remote squads in, say, Africa up to the mid-league European squads, up to the Premier League. Huge part of the economics of soccer. But they also study performance on the pitch, or the field, and they've built models for pitch performance. We'll hear a little bit more about that in a little bit. That's a terrifically important part of soccer analytics because, you know, soccer, there's not a lot of goals scored in soccer, so you mm-hmm. can't do a whole lot with what's actually <laughs> scored. You need some other what, finer metric. What's actually interesting, um, I was trying to translate what Rafael was saying to what I do as department chair. It's interesting... If you think about, it could actually save money for the team. Imagine the following economic argument. You pay in transfer fees, but you keep salaries low. So we do this a lot, I can just say, at the Wharton School, which is I want to attract Professor Jensen from School XYZ. If I raise Professor Jensen's salary, i got to raise a lot of people's (laughs) salary. So what I do instead is I pay Professor Jensen, here's X tens of thousands, a signing bonus, which nobody sees, 
I mean, now in the soccer, it's visible, and that keeps salaries low. And so, actually, you that can is make what it. they did with me. No, I, I got it. <laughs> you guys didn't hear about that? I guess that was the point. I guess that was the point. Drinks are on you, but you see, yeah. my point is, it could actually end up being the most economically yeah. viable way to keep salaries low. So, I think we have Raphael back now. Raphael, are you there? Raphael Poli. Yes. Calling in from Switzerland. We got you back. So we've been talking about player economics. Let's switch gears and talk about pitch performance. And um, this is the kind of thing we talk about a lot on the show, trying to get more reliable statistics. And in soccer, of course, this has been a big challenge for years that you've only got a few goals per match. It's tough to work just with goals. So you work with finer measures of performance. You guys have this thing called pitch performance. And you've written an article recently that says things like, well, you can predict what's going to happen in the rest of the season better if you use the pitch performance grades over the first half of the season than if you use more traditional statistics or one loss record. So, for example, in the Premier League, right now Liverpool unexpectedly is leading Manchester City. But you're saying, based on what we're seeing on pitch performance, Man City has been underperforming, and therefore we'd expect them to do better going forward, where Liverpool's actually been overperforming, so you'd expect them to do worse going forward. Do we have that right, and can you go more into more detail on what pitch performance is? Yes, at team level, you are right. We can say, uh, okay, looking at the, at not only at the goals and points per match, because uh, sometimes is is a matter of chance. Of course, football, as you said, only few goals, so it can uh, turn well one match. Uh, uh, but of course, if you do a whole a whole season, then uh, the random is is less. So we can expect from looking at uh, the, the general performance of a team, the production, the number of uh, uh, chances created, the percentage of passes in the final third of the pitch, for example, these are the metrics we can use, or uh, possession uh, or, or, or shots uh, conceded, the position of cuts, uh, shots conceded, etc. Uh, you can tell, okay, this team uh, so far did not perform that well, but of course, they have a good style of play, they are uh, still uh, you can expect them to improve the results or they on the contrary perhaps they were overperforming even though in the past you notice that there are uh, some teams that do not really fit in the model Atletico Madrid in Spain according to the model should never be uh, really so close than uh, Real Madrid uh, Barcelona but uh, in reality since three or four years they are so of course uh, it is because uh, the, the specific talent of uh, some players, I don't know, the goalkeeper, the centre back, uh, or the ability to uh, perhaps uh, uh, concede chances, but not to uh, not to uh, concede goals, uh, which is in the end the goal. Uh, <laughs> right. This can be also a strategy. Of course, these are exceptions, but uh, still uh, you can say I think uh, predict more or less, but uh, it's not all predictable, and you you find out there also. Atletico Madrid is a good example of that. Well, the, the terrific challenge in analytics is to know when it's truly an outlier, just random, or whether you're missing something in your model that you could actually go back and improve. So it's a wonderful little challenge you got in your hands there. Can you give us a sense of some of the components of the pitch performance model? And in particular, I'm curious about possession. So for for a long time, that began seeming like this is the most important thing. We, goals are, are too unpredictable, so we need to look at like shots on goal. But actually, those are pretty unpredictable, too, so we need to look at possession because that's a precursor to shots on goal. And you had teams like Barcelona who were famous for this, and so everyone thought you got to have the ball. And now the strategy seems to have changed. You've got these teams that are like, we're not worried about that. We just want to have these big counterattacks. Where, what do your models say, and, and, and how, does, how does your model accommodate the fact that these things seem to change over time? 
Yeah, of course. But in the end, we did today a, a weekly, a monthly report. We publish reports every month. This time we did uh, on the link of uh, between possession and success. And uh, ball possession uh, still, uh, it is a key criterion of success. But what is interesting is that uh, it's not sufficient, perhaps, a 55% of possession. To really have an advantage, you need to have more than that. Mm. And, uh, and we speak about 60-40%. And then, of course, you see immediately the, the, the effect on results. You may win the league or not, but still, if you have 60% on average possession, uh, then for sure uh, you have higher chances uh, to, to win your games and to, go, to do good results. And then if you look at the position of passes, of course, uh, if you uh, look at the, at the passes in the final third of the pitch, then uh, your chances uh, to win is even greater than if you do more passes but in other zones of the pitch. Why? Right, right. Because simply you put it, it looks, uh, it's correlated to shots you are able to do, uh, to the chances you created, but it's also a defensive strength to keep the ball because you prevent the opponent's to do uh, to, to have chances or to put pressure on you right. so of course uh, there is this sometimes we will say possession is no more that important but it's not true possession is important because it also uh, goes back to the technique of your player to the ability to take collective strength of clubs uh, because uh, there is a correlation between the length of passes and the percentage of successful ones. It shows that you have a more compact block and then you are able to put uh, uh, pressure and to have a better technical player that are able to, uh, to keep the ball and to pass uh, in, even in, in short, uh, in, in, in narrow spaces, for example, which is uh, very decisive when you approach to the opponent goals. So I think uh, this is an example. Of course, you can go further. It does not explain the results of all, every single matches, but still, uh, if you are a dominant team, uh, then except for Atletico Madrid, perhaps because they win, but uh, without having possession, uh, this is the, more the exception than that confirm the rule. Very interesting, Raphael. Can you give us a sense of the state of the industry? The the analytics are evolving. Are, is team interest in analytics evolving? Is manager interest? Is it beginning to affect strategy on the field? Is it developing? Is it affecting the player development? What's the state of the industry? Yeah, soccer was a bit reluctant to, to all of these analytics since uh, I would say 10, 15 years ago. Then it changed a lot. Uh, now they have uh, hired people, uh, university people doing analytics for them. In some countries more than others, for example, in England it's more, uh, I think, influenced by the U.S., so it was, uh, they anticipated a bit this move. Italy not that much, but uh, I see starting uh, new teams uh, of analytics within teams. They do a lot with video. Video was the first step, I would say, towards this development. But they are not statisticians, those who do the videos. And now they, they have also people, uh, more data scientists, etc., entering the game. They are quite frustrated sometimes when I speak to them because uh, the coaches perhaps are former players. They are not really right. this mentality, this culture. But still, it's moving on. And I think uh, then there are limits. But at least in terms of uh, uh, expectation of the results or tactical uh, tactical decisions uh, or even in, in scouting purposes this is more and more usual also uh, the, the importance of, of statistics uh, is growing got it Raphael we're down to just the last minute or so curious about your take on the Champions League 
all the great teams are left. Seemingly, almost all the great teams are left. There are you know some big favorites, of course, Man City being notable. Are there is there a team in there that you think, according to your analytics, might outperform current market expectations? Who should we have our eye on in the Champions League? Yeah, you know, Champions League is not like a championship where you have 38 games or so. It's uh, it's a competition where you can be very good and then suddenly you lose a match and then you're out. Right. Which is the, 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 the good of this competition. And I think I would even reinforce this also in other competitions because we have a problem of competitive balance today. Right. Because uh, these big clubs have so much money and uh, the knockout no, no, no round is quite good to me because I like the right. prices. So, uh, but let's say today, uh, of course, you have always the same teams a bit uh, who have a real chance, but then it depends on, on chance a lot, on, on refereeing decisions, whether uh, you have the video uh, refereeing, which will be introduced uh, now for the uh, round of 16, uh, but still, uh, in the end, there will, be, uh, there will be one of these big teams, but it's much harder to say which one. I hear you. I understand completely. But I, I agree with you. The, the structure of the tournament adds some flavor. And one of the things you're saying is with, with talent more concentrated, it's even more important to have that randomness. Yes. That is, Raphael, thanks for the time. And we have to hop. I appreciate you taking the time with us. Okay. Thank you to you for your interest. Bye. A- absolutely. Raphael Poli, he is the head of football at, he's head of football observatory at the International Center for Sports Studies. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. You guys can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton That's one 942 Or email us, businessradio at cirrusxm.com. Great way to reach out if you're listening. One of the times we're replayed, four or five times over the course of the week we're replayed. We'll take your emails, businessradio at cirrusxm.com. Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is the account, is the handle. At WMoneyBall will handle your questions, your suggestions. Good way to reach out anytime. Rolling into the second guest segment of the show delighted to welcome chris collinsworth you guys know chris collinsworth played a little football for the cincinnati Bengals back in the 80s wide receiver and for the last 10 years he's been calling football most recently for nbc sunday night football it's an institution now and chris collinsworth's with us in our living rooms every sunday night chris welcome to the show thanks kate how are you doing fine doing fine delighted to have you where are you calling in from this morning from beautiful Longboat Key, Florida, as soon as our last game was over, I headed for the sunshine. It's been about 55 degrees ever since. Oh, my gosh. You're not upset to not be calling that Kansas City game uh, this upcoming Sunday when it'll be, you know, five degrees Fahrenheit? Pretty brokenhearted about that, yeah. But, uh, last, last time we were in there, it was about 30 and snow. That's uh, That was about the edge for me. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. I, you know, it's... it's uh, this kid Patrick Mahomes has just been such an incredible story, but we'll see. You know, it's always one step at a time, right? One test at a time. Now, can he handle zero degrees? And right, uh, he's a pretty incredible young man. So, you were calling the game this past weekend, is that right? Did you have the Kansas City game or no? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So, what what did that? I mean, you were probably amazed by him earlier in the 
season at some point. Did, did that, that game change your – do you continue to be impressed? Do you continue to update your opinion on Pat Mahomes? Um, yeah, a little bit. We, we got into a little discussion of just how bright he was with Andy Reid. And, and the more I watched that game closely and studied him on the tape, you could see that uh, his ability to process uh, information – um, and not only with his reads, but with what he was doing at the line of scrimmage. And it was uh, one of the things that they worried about when Alex Smith went to Washington and they made the decision to move on to Mahomes is, you know, when they drafted him, just exactly how much could he process? Because Smith was, uh, you know, a veteran guy. He's been around and a really bright guy. And, and, um, and the exciting part, I think, for Andy and the staff was that in the first week that they used him, his week 17 of his rookie year, they let him play against Denver. Uh, and he was able to retain and process and use all the information uh, that was put in front of him. And you can just see from the early games this year that we called with him to where he is now that, you know, he's probably not going to match Tom Brady yet, you know, at age 40, whatever he is. But, I mean, this is a young man that just is taking leaps with his not only physical skills, but uh, with what he's done mentally. Do, do you think that's a quality that is very accessible when they're coming out of college? You know, picking NFL quarterbacks is one of the great challenges and debates every year. And, you know, how are they really supposed to figure out how good a college player will be in the pros? You might think that they could get at that particular quality, you know, to put them through some paces intellectually, to throw things at them. In your experience, is that one of these traits that is accessible or not very accessible? Uh, it is accessible, um, and of course they give you the, that test, and, and you get a chance to see where you score on that. Um, but I, I think you mean the Wonderlick is that one you're talking about? Yeah, that's what Chris yeah. is talking about. Yeah. yeah, and uh, I can remember taking it. Believe it or not, they took it back when I was coming out as well, and none of us even knew what it was. Yeah, they like stuck us all in the room, all these football players, and said, "You guys need to take this test." Yeah, so we're sitting there, and we're all you know just trying to figure out, okay, you have 10 minutes or 12 minutes or whatever it was, and you're, like, just ripping through it, and you're not even paying attention. None of us knew that it was for the NFL. None. <laughs> and and then we went to the Dallas Cowboys. I don't know if you'll remember this game or not, but they had a this, this four-sided memory game. So it was four different colors. So it would go beep, so you hit that button. Then it go beep, beep, and you hit those two buttons. Then it go beep, 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 and it, and it was like, how long could you – stay on task and yeah. remember, you know, that whole thing. So they do a lot of different uh, things to try and do it. But I, I think That's for amazing. the most part now, they're putting people on the board. So they get up right. and they'll say, all right, here we go. I'm going to draw, you know, this play and this play, and this is the defense. And if you get this coverage, do that. and get that coverage, do that. If not, let's check to the run and blah, 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 blah. And they go, okay, now you draw it, right? And right. they want to see how much of that can be retained Right. Uh, by them, because really, when you go to a new team, no matter where it is, it's like learning a foreign language. Mm -hmm. uh, you you literally at the line of scrimmage are speaking a foreign language that hopefully others <laughs> can't pick up on too quickly. Right. But I, the the real challenge to the whole thing, and and what makes Tom Brady and then Drew Brees what they are, are their ability to process after the snap. Once the ball uh -huh. is snapped and you're dropping back, generally their eyes are on the two safeties. Uh, because the two safeties will either be a single high coverage, a double high coverage, drop down in some kind of man coverage. They, but that's the that's the, the the main component 
of the disguise of the defense. Right. So that's probably where they start. And then when they see that safety move, they know without seeing it what the implications are for the rest of the secondary. They, they immediately know what to anticipate in every other section of the secondary. Is that the way it goes? Well, they do, but they, there's always what did John Madden used to say, yeah, but um, there's disguises off the disguises. So okay. a lot of times now they'll, they'll okay, we're going to drop this down and make you believe that this is a cover zero and that you can throw this pattern, and then they run the middle linebacker back to free safety, so you throw the, the post and you look stupid because the guy's right there. Or it used to be the zone blitz did the same thing. Okay. So you would you would blitz uh, off of one side, and then you would drop a defensive lineman. So you're reading the two linebackers. So two linebackers come weak, and you have to throw hot. So then you do that, but the defensive tackle is dropped right underneath the slant. Right. So the game is just never ending, you know. And <laughs> so those who are capable of processing a lot of information – uh, post snap are, are really the guys who are always playing in the Super Bowl. It seems like in this case, uh, that's what Tom Brady is so magical doing. So, Chris, this is Eric Bradlow. One of the things that I think people have underappreciated this year is the defense of the New England Patriots. We briefly talked about it in our first half hour, but of the four remaining playoff teams, they're the best defensive team by far, using at least stats and advanced stats. Do you think Mahomes's challenge? What challenges do you think the New England defense... People always talk about Brady. Let's talk about the defense. They were the fourth-best defensive team in the NFL this season. What challenges do you think Mahomes will face with the New England defense? Heavy. A a lot of challenges. And it won't be physical. It won't be, you know, can he outrun the defensive tackle, or it won't be any of that. It's, It's all going to be mental. Um, But I'll say this. When we did the game earlier this year... Uh, Belichick told us that their rookie year, they opened with Kansas City, if I've got my years correct, uh, when, and, 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 uh, Belichick was so impressed with Mahomes in preseason. They did a whole game plan getting ready for Alex Smith, but they also did an entire game plan getting ready for Patrick Mahomes because they thought he had outplayed Smith in preseason and that they were likely not telling anybody that he was going to be the starting quarterback. Wow. So at least they've got a little bit of a jump on him uh, from his early days on. Uh, and obviously they were also scouting quarterbacks at that time. So they are, he clearly has their attention. But you will see that the, the, the thing about the Patriots to begin with is you don't know, like the game tape that you're watching – Usually teams break down four games prior uh, to that. And the game tape, whatever the Patriots have shown on those four games, typically you won't get for your game. So I can't tell you how many teams have said that basically, you know, we, we don't even bother to study. We, oh my. we set up game plans to react. So we have to understand if they've been playing a 4-3, they're likely to play a 3-4. If they've been playing zone, they're likely to be playing man-to-man. You know, if they're if they've not been blitzing, they're likely to blitz us, and so that that you have to sort of um, you know prepare in quadrants. Okay, if they do this, we're going to do this. If you do this, we're going to do this. So that's the ultimate challenge here. It Chris, Chris, can I ju- ask you a question about that? The, yeah. It's one thing to conceive of such a thing as a coach. It's an entirely different thing to execute it. What does Belichick? do and what does his staff do differently that allow them to change schemes like that on the fly and actually implement it successfully 
they do it from the beginning. And the key is having uh, versatile players. So the players that they draft, uh, and the reason I'm totally, and I've had this conversation with Bill before. I said, you don't even care what your record is in September, do you? And he smiled and said, what are you talking about? I said, you're so busy <laughs> cross-training all these players to play all these different positions uh, that you know you're going to lose a couple of games early on. And, of course, he is not you know, saying anything, but he did start talking about all the, the, the cross-training. So the key to the disguise is that you have to have players like um, you know, Patrick Chung, Devin McCourty, Trey Flowers, Kyle Van Noy, you know, I mean, Kyle Van Noy plays inside linebacker. He plays down pass rusher. He plays inside pass rusher. He plays drop coverage guy. You know, he plays all these different positions. So those sort of uh, tweener guys that don't work in a lot of organizations because they want a stud pass rusher, they want a stud inside linebacker, whatever. They work for the Patriots because this cross training is who they are in their core mm-hmm. so that by the time they get to January, these guys can play literally anything that Bill can dream up. And that is what makes the Patriots not so good in September and really good late. Chris, so Chris, this Eric brother, just building on that, I just looked at the Patriots record this season. I saw something that is remarkable. Let's call it rise to the occasion. But both your time as a player and a value, I'd like your opinion. The Patriots went 4-0 against playoff teams this year, so undefeated. Seven and five against non. All five of their losses are actually against non-playoff teams. So this builds upon your view of they don't really care what's going on in September and October against you know they lost to Jacksonville, Detroit, Tennessee, Miami, and Pittsburgh. Those were their five losses. And so, how, how can that happen? How can you be undefeated against playoff teams and all of your losses against non-playoff teams? Is it because they're building up to something? Is it they're using the regular season to get ready? Is it they don't get motivated? How do you think about that? Yeah, they're, they're experimental. So what they'll do is that they they will be trying all these different things. I mean, you have to you have to remember, it's easy to say the Patriots and Tom Brady, right? And, and to some extent, the offense stays a little bit the same. Defensively, there's always major change over there. There's always these new guys that they're plugging and playing. And so, and Belichick doesn't really know what his team is going to do best until they get into the season. But it doesn't keep him. Now, he probably has some idea from OTAs and the offseason and training camp and all the different things that, that go with it. Uh, but it doesn't keep him from his process. And his process is to run everything. His process is to be able to, to go through his Rolodex, pull out a card, call it, and his guys can do it. Well, if, if a team, if you're playing the Detroit Lions and they're playing their same, you know, well, now the Detroit Lions are playing what the Patriots are doing, but you're playing a team that plays kind of the same look all the time, right? And so halfway through the year, they're really good at that. You know, they've had a lot of reps at that same basic core defense. Where you look at the um, you, you look at the New England Patriots, well, instead of playing eight games by midseason, playing a four-three under with uh, cover two, they probably have played two games of cover two, two games of man, two games of, of blitz look, two games of stunts and, and and loops and different things up front, and so they're not great at any of them yet but they are good and getting better at all of them. So then come the end of the season, 
he can pull up whichever defense fits up best against the opposing offense. I find this whole conversation extremely interesting, and I'm wondering whether or not there's been an analysis that kind of measures this. I mean, what you're telling us is that Belichick is uses a lot of the season to experiment, and therefore we should be able to see that in the data um, and compare that versus other coaches and other and other teams. Has anyone ever looked at this before, or is it is this a research project waiting to happen? Oh, I would imagine uh, somebody at PFF is listening right now and, uh, <laughs> and going after it pretty good. So, exactly. Uh, that. That's going to take us into another conversation with Chris. Let me just reset real quick. This is Chris Collinsworth, of course, longtime football analyst and before that NFL wide receiver. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. You can join the conversation one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or hit us up on Twitter at W Moneyball. Whole crew in here today: Cade Massey, Eric, Audie, and Shane. Talking to Chris. Chris, Audie raises this question, which is exactly on point, right? As you're talking about the different schemes that the Patriots' defense is deploying. PFF, Pro Football Focus, is one of the only outfits that has the data on all these different schemes. They know every play, what they were playing, and one could break down their performance. One, well, first, they could just you could just describe the prevalence, of, and you could describe how varied New England is versus how varied other teams are. And then you could look at performance over time. You know, one of the l- longest-standing and best-established empirical patterns in economics is learning by doing how much better and how much more efficient – organizations get when they do the same thing over and over again. It does strike me that PFF could show that, or at least dig into it. Well, I mean, we obviously have it. So I can go online and, and find, okay, they've run this much over front, this much under front, this much bare front, this much blitz. They blitz this percentage, this much in the coverage, this much in the thing. But what, what you don't have a great feel for is anticipating the next. So where we get into it is, okay, this team looks like this team, right? So, you know, all right, this, this, so let's compare what um, what this team with this blitz look and, and this, uh, you know, single high safety look um, looks like other people. Yep. So San Diego looks like Seattle because there's a history of coaches that look yep. like Atlanta because they're going to play that that Seattle cover three defense, single high safety, and but you know not everybody has Earl Thomas and Richard Sherman, so right. it all looks a little bit different. So we do a lot of that uh, on the fly as it is, and, and believe me, the NFL coaches fully understand what I'm talking about with with uh, with all of this. Um, the, the issue is that it's a hard television subject. You know, it, it's it's a hard thing for, I mean, I have to remember, and Al Michaels constantly hits me in the back of the head to remind me that grandma's watching. You know, and <laughs> not everybody wants to get into this level of detail. They want to hear, you know, what, what Player X said about his grandmother. And so we've got to keep <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's why I'm listening. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's you try to give a little flavor of it to everybody and in, in what we do. Uh, but it's a broad audience, you know. It's uh, been the number one show now for uh, whatever about eight years in a row. So we play to it. We play to that broad audience. But I really, on, I love being on shows like this uh, because I like the details too, you know. And I, and it's the reason that I love PFF because it's become my own laboratory, if you will. So I can literally, uh, because I have a, a lot of math professors working for me, say, well, what about this? And I can dream up something, and usually a couple of keystrokes away is, is the answer. So 
uh, what started off as something that um, I'm not so sure was a smart business decision to get into in the beginning. <laughs> I was like, oh, I have no idea what I'm doing here. Well, can you tell um, us about that? It's, it's, it is interesting. You know, we got to know those guys before we even knew that you were involved, and we've had them on the show over the years many times, including the founder Neil Hornsby, but you know we interviewed Steve Palazzolo at the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. So we're big yeah. fans of the work, and we and we're keeping a close eye on it because I think you guys really are kind of changing the world of football analytics. What, how did you get involved? What was the what was the germ? What was the original interest there, and and how has that changed from your initial interest to what you're doing now? I had to do a post game show, and I knew I had to do it. There was, and I said. So they're going to pay me, right? And I'm like, okay, whatever, I'll do it. But I had, for the most part, I'm still prepping during the day. So I'm kind of the games are on in the background, but usually I'm, there's one game that are maybe two that I'm keeping up with. So they wanted me to do a post-game show on all these games. And I said, all right, you know, I'll, I'll do the best I can. And so I but I started researching. I said, surely somebody online gives a pretty exhaustive recap of what happened in the, the earlier games. And I came across the pro football focus. And so I looked at it and, and they had this color coded system that they used for their grading. And I was like, so then I went back to the two or three games that I had just done. And I really understood not just the players, but what the coaches thought of those players. Mm-hmm. And I started looking, and I go, wow, this matches up pretty well. I wonder who these guys are. Hmm. So then they had a, you know, an option to pay twenty six ninety nine, and I was like, okay. So I put my credit card in there, twenty six ninety nine, and here I go, and I'm tapping away. And the deeper I got, the better I, it was, and the more I liked it. And I was like, wow, you know, these guys got to be former coaches or whatever. And so in the, the little contact us box in the upper corner, I just, I couldn't help myself. I typed in, I go, I go, Hey, this is Chris Collinsworth. Uh, enjoy your stuff. Who are you guys? Right? <laughs> and I put in my phone number. And so I'm thinking, ah, you know, I, I'm not, I'm never even sure that contact us box even works. Right. So about two and a half minutes later, my phone rang. <laughs> And it's That's a good guy, business person right there. This guy, Neil Hornsby, with this British accent, <laughs> telling me he runs Pro Football Focus. And all I can think is, son of a blank, <laughs> I cannot believe this Brit has hustled me out of twenty six ninety nine. I'm so mad, I can't stand it. So I said, I'm going to take care of this in about 30 seconds. So I start asking this guy about, guards and inside linebackers and special teams players and blah blah and after about five minutes i've shut up because he knows more about it than i do i mean his level of detail and memorization of names and knowing what he was talking about was blowing me away and i was like who are you and he started telling me this long story about how he fell in love with the game of football and he was this guy who used to, to blend companies together, they would hire him to, to take company A and company B and merge them together. And then he would digitize, you know, whatever he could, but he would have to fire half the people in, in one company or the other, whoever was the weaker link via how he started hating his life. So he took on this full time. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and so they had about nine or 10 uh, teams that that uh, they were working for at the time, 
And we started talking about everything. We started talking about fantasy football and, you know, what else we could do for the teams and could they do college football and, you know, and all these different subjects. And within a month, I had bought the company. Wow. And, and, um, and then since then, now we work for all 32 NFL teams. We work for about 50 college teams. We work for almost every major network that's out there. And uh, we've got a... a, a, a a B to C consumers can can play along with us, and mm-hmm. uh, so we've got about a two million dollar business with uh, with the consumers who can buy the products online and and use our services. So it's it's been a uh, it's been a really really great adventure. I, I love these guys; they're all glass eaters. We get about a thousand applicants a year, people wanting to work with us. That wow. we we narrow down to about. 12 or 15 people that we hire and and uh it's it's quite the process <laughs> the, the tryout to become a member of pff is uh you find some some really great talent uh, with the, the process that we go through chris watching you it seems like you're in this not just as a business person but a little bit as an evangelist for not quite football analytics but a better and deeper understanding of football is that fair to say and to the extent that that is true what have you learned about evangelizing analytics and 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 different new different ways of looking at a sport that has kind of a culture of not real openness to new and different things we're interested it's kind of one of the things we're in the in the business of in many different ways is evangelizing better analytics it's a hard sell sometimes what have you learned about that process through your experience with pff um you better be ready to be humbled because things that you've known your whole life are often wrong um, and, you know, and I, I think, you know, there's many, many, many examples of that. Um, but I, I think probably the running game is probably the, the most interesting of those discussions. It was always believed that you had to run the ball mm-hmm. uh, in order to throw the ball. Whereas in reality, the simple math is that, uh, for example, San Diego um, last year was the worst team in the NFL, averaging right about five yards per carry that they allowed per run. Uh, and everybody thinks that that's an absolute disaster. Well, mm-hmm. the average pass play, uh, including sacks, including interceptions, including incompletions, and all those sort of things, averages about seven and a half yards per play mm-hmm. on, on any team. So if you do a very simple math, you understand that if I choose to run the football, on this play, my odds are, you know, not quite what they are if I attempt to pass on this play. Most teams on, if they throw an incomplete pass on first down, what do they do? They run it on second down to make it a more, quote, manageable third down <laughs> right. that they can convert. Right. Whereas the reality of it is, you should be passing the ball, if you throw an incompletion on first down, you should be passing the ball on second down and trying to pick up the first down there instead of waiting for third down where one incompletion away, you're off the field. So, Chris, Chris uh, let, me jump in, let me jump in real quick. You've got the entire – well, actually, more so this year than ever. You've got the football analytics community behind you on that point. But you have to go have the conversation with the Pete Carrolls and Brian Schottenhammers of the world. So how do you have that conversation with Schottenheimer, who has such a different view and how, how do you how do you convince someone? We we all have these conversations. So what have you learned about how to have that? Pers- how, how do you be effective when you're talking to Pete Carroll and Brian Schottenheimer about effectiveness of pass versus run? Well, I I I put it in the form of a question. I'm like Jeopardy. I say I say something like, 
Well, Pete, you know, I know you guys are focused on the run and you've turned your season around clearly by, by focusing a little bit more on the run. I said, but how, how do you explain, right? So you put it in the form of a question. How do you explain that the, that, uh, the teams, the four teams that allow the highest yards per carry average, uh, are all playoff teams? You know, if it really comes down to running the ball and stopping the run, then how are those teams in the playoffs? Mm-hmm. And there was a guy, Jim Johnson, who used to be the defensive coordinator of the Philadelphia Eagles many years ago, uh, and a brilliant guy and way ahead of his time uh, with Andy Reid. And and we had a long discussion about this, and, and he had their team had given up 170 yards rushing or something like that. Um, the week before, and I was like, I go, how can you guys win giving up that many yards rushing? And he said, I don't care how many yards rushing I give up. I was mm. like, what? You know, because <laughs> I, I'm still in the old school yeah. money ball thought of, you know, on base percentage doesn't mean anything, right? right. You know, I'm still living in that world. And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, it doesn't make any difference. He said, you just got to give, you can't give up the big plays in the passing game. So mm-hmm. we're going to focus in on that. And he was a very understated guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he, so much of talking to him reminds me of talking to Andy Reid now. Uh-huh. I mean, Andy Reid won't ever commit to anything. Even when I strike a couple of nerves where he knows I know what I'm talking about. And because, you know, they're a customer and a, a lot of their coaches read PFF stats back to me when they're talking about their opponent and I just smile I don't say anything you know <laughs> uh-huh. and I, I just do it but but every once in a while Andy will give you like a, a not a, quite a wink but it'll give you a little nod like you're on it you got it mm-hmm. and like this, this this past game I, I was I was talking about you know the Indianapolis Colts and their inside linebackers and because a lot of times they try to jump underneath coverage mm-hmm. And I said, well, what are you going to do? You know, 53 out there is, you know, and he goes, he just kind of gave me that little wink at about the third play of the game. They hit, they hit Kelsey in the flat. And then the very next play, they suck this linebacker up Mm. and then they hit the crossing route in behind him for a Mm. big play. Mm. So, Mm. I mean, they know it. These coaches aren't stupid. They know it. And, And the other thing I'll say is this, you would be surprised and I won't, I won't say who, but a lot of the most old school coaches, we go to the combine every year to, to sell and you know meet with the teams and all that kind of stuff with, with PFF. We get more people from Wharton and Harvard and MIT and Stanford in a room that represents some of these teams. Some of these old school, they would never let you on to what they are kind of football teams. And they'll bring in a team of seven or eight data analysts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the discussions that happen in that room would you would pay money to listen. <laughs> I mean, it is unbelievable to hear these brilliant young people, men and women, uh, talking about the game of football. Chris, the only thing I'd push on that is they may be in the building, but the question is whether they're actually being listened to by the general. Correct. Oh. You know what you're talking about. <laughs> you absolutely know what you're talking about. So now, here's the other issue. We have other teams that send uh, one of the data or a couple of the data analysts in. They usually only have one or two if they have this mentality. And then the defensive line coach or somebody, some old school coach, 
go in there and just beat our guys up, right? And so I said, we sit there and we let, we take it, and, you know, we do the whole thing. And then, you know, we, we present our case. You look over at the data analytics guys, and they're kind of rolling their eyes a little bit as this guy continues to tell me how important the run game is to – or whatever, you know, how important the, the, a nose tackle is to, to football. And I'm like, yeah, okay, all right, ever. And, and so all these things you basically know that, that aren't true. But we also <laughs> walk out of the room going, that team that's been really good for a long time, they're about to go the other way. Yeah, and exactly. Almost every time they do. Yeah. So the teams, the teams, and we can almost, based on our meetings of who we're meeting with and, and what they're mm-hmm. saying, we can almost tell who the up-and-coming teams are going to be Absolutely. and who the teams are they're going to be falling off. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Um, looking ahead to this uh, Sunday, uh, the Can- a big story behind the Kansas City game, I think, is going to be the weather and just sort of how what kind of unprecedentedly cold it's going to be. What do, what do you get, At Pro Football Focus, what do you think about when you have a situation that it, you don't have a lot of historical data for, that you know, maybe you're having to base, you know, predictions off of like, you know, a handful of games throughout NFL history. How how do people kind of in your organization think about those kind of prediction problems? Well, it, it, you know, we, we try to break down everything, in, including the weather. But obviously there aren't that many of these kinds of games. I happen to have played in one. I, I played in what they call whatever the freezer bowl or whatever they called it. In 1981, my rookie year out of the University of Florida, mind you, <laughs> uh, I, I woke up the day of the championship game against the then San Diego Chargers, uh, which I wish I'd never said again because now it's going to be playing in my head again. Um, but the, the the talk radio back when they had or my my alarm clock was a radio alarm clock, and it came on, and the first thing I heard was. Um, ladies and gentlemen, it is nine below zero outside. The wind <laughs> is blowing 35 miles an hour, which makes for a wind chill of 59 below zero. Oh Whatever you do, don't let your dog outside today. <laughs> and I'm thinking, and this dog ain't going nowhere. I'm scared to death to go out there. And it was an unbelievable day. And the one just sort of thing I learned was how significant the ability to throw a spiral was. Mm. Kenny Anderson that day threw these perfect spirals through this wind, and Dan Fouts really had trouble just holding on to the ball, and, and he sort of threw a bit of a flutter ball anyway. So there's details of it, but there aren't enough of these kinds of games to really understand and to say, oh, this is absolutely true, especially when you're talking about you know a, a second-year quarterback. And remember, the college seasons, for the most part, end in November, so we never even see them play in December weather, much less January weather. Right. So, Chris, final word, just down here to the last minute or so. You talk about, as a player, you had this experience, and this was a playoff game. We have trouble, as analysts, sussing out how performance might vary under pressure. We're in the playoffs now. We're in the conference championships now. You've played in Super Bowls. What would you say about variation in how players respond to those moments. Do you believe in that? Is it true that some players do stand up better under pressure? And is is there any chance we'd ever have of being able to identify that and predict it ahead of time? Um, You know, on, on a grand scale, of course, you know, we know Tom Brady can handle the pressure of a Super Bowl, right? But, 
Tom Brady doesn't decide everything. And, I mean, who would have ever dreamed that Malcolm Butler was going to come up and make that play against Seattle uh, and then not play in the next Super Bowls, for that matter? Um, but, I mean, it is – it is. there's always there's always a surprise. And, it, and it's the reason we tune in. You know, if we could ever get to the point where we've got it all figured out, A, we've moved to Las Vegas – <laughs> and, and B, we wouldn't watch the games, right? Yeah, so yeah. there's always that human factor. And, and I think that you've hit on the real key to it. There are some people that their whole life have overcome and overachieved. And given the bright spotlights, they've been waiting their whole life to prove somebody wrong that they really are, despite the fact they only run 4-6. They're a great athlete, and that chip wears really well on their shoulder. Mm-hmm. And they make these spectacular plays and pressure moments, and they want the football. And other guys can run 4-3, uh, but you can tell watching them on the field in those moments, they really don't want the football. Mm. They would prefer somebody else to have the football. Not everybody wants to take the, the final shot at the buzzer uh, with the season on the line. Mm-hmm. You know, there are just certain – Kobe Bryant's and LeBron James and Michael Jordan's in the world who who not only want it who insist on the ball in those situations. Right. And and so that's the magic of it. And you know there is some historical data on who those types of players are, but you always find a new one. You mm-hmm. always find a new couple of guys mm-hmm. in every one of those moments that step up and make these brilliant plays. Uh, and those memories last a lifetime. And so that's really, you know, the very foundation of, of why we love it so much. Mm-hmm. That's great. And it'll be fun to watch this weekend, of course, and the Super Bowl a couple weeks from now. Chris, listen, really appreciate your taking the time to be with us. Enjoy your time off. Enjoy Florida down there in the better weather. All right, guys. Thanks for having me on. You bet. That was Chris Collinsworth, of course, longtime football analyst for NBC before that. Uh, wide receiver for the Cincinnati Bengals, having his own experience in the Super Bowl and apparently the Freezer Bowl before that. This has been three quarters. We've got a fourth quarter left. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Warden Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m., 10 a.m. Eastern. Whole crew in here today, Eric, Adi, Shane, this is Kate Massey. You guys can join the conversation, one 844 Wharton one 844 or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. Probably the best way to reach us, at WMoneyBall. Throw us questions or comments. Just off the phone with Chris Collinsworth. That was terribly enjoyable, entertaining, insightful. Terrible. I would Very. say insightful conversation with Chris. What did you guys think? What did you learn? I learned something. I'm learning a lot about the NFL. That's been one of my themes in the last, in the last week or two. Last five years. Last five say. years. But one of the things that, that this the conversation pointed out was kind of the inverse of what we were talking about earlier. As the teams have moved towards passing offenses, he's, he's actually pointed out that the right thing to do is ignore ru- rushing defenses. And only start defending. Try to just work hard to make sure you can defend against the pass. And, and that's apparently what I was hearing. Is that, so the offensive side, you want to you want to be great at, at passing. But on the defensive side, make sure that you defend against the but pass. Why wouldn't that follow, Adi? Why are you? It does by? follow. But I'm surprised that 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 be, that becomes a major issue. Um, that the defeat def, de, and it doesn't necessarily show up as being good de- defensively. Maybe you can comment on that. 
I'm not sure I follow you all together. He, he was mainly saying that there still are these old school senses of you have to establish the run, you have to stop the run. Like there's this strong belief that you have to do that. And but well, the, he's pointing out you don't need to stop the run. I know he's saying, and I think that's very fascinating. That's right. So it's 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 the it's the it's kind of the perfect parallel to the emergence of the that's passing right. offense. Is that the what if passing offense is the most important key and in in really across the sport, then passing defense the, the is the second most important thing. And I've never heard that. Defense. That was not something sort of, sort of laid out that you mm-hmm. should defend against the pass and actually. Ignore the running. I may take it too far. I mean, I, and, and, and I, <laughs> think, I, I think, I think, I mean, we didn't specifically. I mean, we kind of talked a little bit about this. Really, I, I think a key to success is just lack of predictability, right? I mean, that, like, I mean, if you just were, if you. If teams knew that they could run at will on you, that would not be a good situation right, either, right? right? So I, th- I think it's well, sort of like... Be- that conversation. No, no, and I mean, New England, I think, does that probably better than any other team in the league. But I think in general, kind of having an, a, a versatile enough you know, personnel and game plan to be unpredictable to the other team, I think, is... High entropy, the there it is yeah, again. That's, yeah. that's, that's what I took <laughs> away from the conversation with Chris, was the conversation about... The New England Patriots, in some sense, he used the word. These were his words, uh, Chris's words. So you're, they're experimenting. And sure, they're, if they're going to play the Detroit Lions, and the Detroit Lions are playing, you know, have gotten really good at something, yeah, the Patriots could lose to the Lions. But what Belichick is thinking is, I may need to be good at four or five different things by the end of the season. And so I'm willing to lose a few games so that, number one, as, as Adi said, I can generate uncertainty and entropy. Mm-hmm. But B... I'm not just going to run something in the AFC Championship game that we haven't done throughout the year. And so, in some sense, he's not only recognizing entropy and variance, but they have to gain expertise in those areas, I'll use Cade's words from the interview, learning by doing. They have to do it during the season, and that made sacrifice. Now, of course, they have the luxury of doing it, because just so you all know the stats, for something like the 10th consecutive season, if you just use the simple metric of the total wins in a division, they're in the worst division in football again. So they can continue to experiment. They don't need to go 13-3 and to win their division. They're, I mean, every other team in their division had a losing record and a cons- in their, you know, th- yeah, this year. I, I so mean, they I, can, I, I'm, I'm just saying, they can I'm afford gonna... it more so than, imagine they were the Chargers this year. How would you like to have yeah. gone 11-5? and five? If they were in the Chargers division, they would have been in third place. I mean, I'm, obviously they wouldn't have had the same record. They would have played each other. They Because they're in the AFC East. They can afford to go potentially eleven and five, still win the division. You don't agree with that? No, I, I only push back on a little bit because I I, I hear the divi- you know their 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 the crappiness of their division as a, as as a long exp- uh, an explanation for how good they've been over these last twenty years or something no, like that. No, no, their that's record not what I said. Outside, their record outside their division is actually better than in their division. No, he, he, no his point is, I think he, the point he's making is that because they play a weak division that allows oh, that them they, to they, experiment. Yeah, I wasn't that, they have, that, they, have, that uh, they have more of a weak, they have a lot of wiggle, wiggle room as far as their saying, they don't No, have, I mean, I'll concede that They don't point, have certainly. to think that yeah. they can go, they don't have to go 13-3 and three to win That's their division. Right. They can go 11-5 and five They're, they're going to get in the playoffs. They're so, going to get in. They need that home field in the playoffs, though. Well, the point is, which I think is very interesting, is that the claim is that they actually do experiment and become good at four or five different aspects of the game which they a skill they hone over the course of the season so by the the playoffs times roll around they've got it mastered and now yeah. they're under un, or much harder by to the beat. way it, it makes sunday's game against kansas city again i want to say what i said to chris really intriguing the patriots have the worst offense of the who would have said this at the beginning of the season of the four teams remaining on the average. patriots have the worst offense 
and the best defense of the four teams yeah. remaining. It was yeah. what you had said in the so first half, really half Shane, to, is that you yeah. trust the defense now more than in some a lot of past years. You even compared it to the 2011 team. You said this team's got a better defense, and the data actually supports that. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to emphasize two other quick things that he mentioned. So underlying this ability to play multiple defenses is having players who can play multiple positions. And this is a theme that has emerged across sports. I mean, if we go back to the to well, I was ma- Major try League to bring Baseball, up the Cubs. Yeah, the Cubs were famous for this. Now other yep. teams are trying to do the same thing. This multiplicity, the Yankees are trying to, can't the multiplicity it. turns out because you, because of various constraints imposed by rosters or you know by the need to strategically you know cloak what you're going to do defensively. Multiplicity turns out to be really important. The other thing I got was. He said the way he approaches trying to persuade people who don't believe in the advanced stats is by questions. And that's uh, you know, we're always interested in new techniques, trying to add something to our toolbox, asking these kind of Socratic thing here. Okay, so Mr. Carroll, who believes in or Schottenheimer, whoever it is over there driving the bus on, on running so much for the Seahawks. How do you explain what we're seeing in the NFL right I now? I just also have tremendous respect for someone, not just that he made a business investment in an analytics-based firm, but if you think about what we all try to do in life is do things that are synergistic, he has to know, not just as a business person, maybe he's going to make money on PFF, that would be great, but it has to help him as a commentator. Yeah. So I like the fact that yeah. he invested in something that this is exactly... It has to help him as he's thinking about breaking down games, analyzing games. It was great to hear that. Yep. All right. Let's do some quick hitters before we come back to the conference finals um, on Sunday. So we've got a few topics that I know have bubbled up over the last week. So Kyler Murray announcing for the NFL draft. Well, he announced for the NFL draft. doesn't mean he's going to not play baseball. It just means that he's not going to play football in college anymore um, if he announces He has his day or if two. He's dr- now, what do you think that's going to depend on? Is he waiting to see whether he is... A first round tra- draft pick. So he's he has a first, be a round, first round draft. Well, pick. you know that that financially, that's a hell of a lot more money than he's got guaranteed or even expected value in baseball. Because so, in baseball, they come under a super suppressed contract for that first four or five years. Yeah, and and you yeah, know, I mean, four, just and, and I mean, if he's a first round draft pick in the NFL, he will play in the NFL. Right. I mean. The and NFL, he will he will get all the opportunities. Next year. That's, you, right. You know, that's right. As opposed to, I mean, baseball, it's going to take him, you know, two or three years to even percolate yeah, up knows to what the he's gonna major be the, league the, label. Usually, baseball, when you're graduating high school, baseball financially is a far better deal. Far better. It's just it's just insane how 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 many people choose to play you know go to college and play football when financially they are far better off doing baseball. Mm-hmm. But Kyler Murray is in a situation where it's reversed. Because he's proven himself on the field in college, and he's going to get a $25 million package or more, depending on where he goes. Mm-hmm. And that is still too uncertain in baseball. You, this is a longer conversation, but do y'all believe in his NFL prospect? He is approximately 5'10". He's got a little yeah. bit more than 5'9", according to some of the guys inside the Sooners. But he's a small guy, even, you know, I mean, he's Breeze is a small guy. Breeze is six, six, feet. six, six foot. Um, so... I don't know how definitive that is. Some people think it's that's absolutely deterministic. What do you think his prospects are in the NFL? The reason I'll say highly uncertain is not so much about his skill set, is that you're going to have to, if you're an offensive coordinator with Kyler Murray as your quarterback, you're going to have to change your schemes and the way you run things. I mean, just the, I hate to say it, his release angle, I mean, he's going to be trying to throw and view over guys yeah. six foot five. You're going to have, there are certain plays that may be actually, I'll call it out of your playbook. So the part that I will say is uncertain is it, it he better, if he goes to the NFL and plays, he better go to a team where the offensive coordinator builds the offense around what he can do 
and can't do. I don't. Qu- question for you: If Doug Flutie came out in this era, this era of the NFL with these wide open offenses and passing oriented schemes, do you think he'd have had a longer career in the NFL? I think he might have. I think he might have. I, I mean, just, he's an extraordinary athlete. Yeah, he really. No, I mean, yeah, I used to watch him from my hometown, Calgary Stampeders, in the Canadian <laughs> Football League. No, he 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 was unbelievable, and uh, I do think just because I think there is now. I, I think he would have been able to find a home where they could have schemed sort of like to to give him even better Wait, success. So can I clarify this? So lack of stature, if you will, is that's how bad is that for if you're a passing game? Is it really particularly destructive? I mean, I mean, it's, it's one of these things that probably is not as destructive as people has long, have long believed. I mean, nobody would have believed Breeze would be one of the two or three or four all time great passers in league history. As his stature, it's one of these things that's overrated. Six but feet. It matters. There's a huge difference between six feet and five nine, and I, I'm, I'm not, I would not focus a huge career out of Kyler Murray, mm-hmm. but I will focus a big first contract. <laughs> okay, well, that, that's, and that's sufficient. Right. Yes, okay, what about the NBA? What's going on in the NBA right now? Well, we still have this situation where now there's actually a non-significant probability that every team but one in the Western Conference could end up with a winning record. So I'm going to say that again. There are 15 teams in the West, like there are in the East. 14 of them right now, and the 14th team is not at 500, but Memphis last year won a lot of games. They're only 19 and 24. They're not that far below 500. The West is still ridiculously jammed up. I mean, the top two teams appear to be better, Golden State and Denver. But the other thing that happened last night, I don't know if you guys saw it. So Golden State played at Denver. This was for the control of the West. All right, well, Golden State put up an NBA record. NBA record, not just for them, for everybody. They put up 51 points in the first quarter (laughs) in Denver, and they won by, I think it was 35 points. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, you know, they were just scoring at will. They ended up with 140-something points. And so, at the end of the day, do we have, I mean, you've said it the whole season, I mean, Golden State is coming out of the West, right? Yeah, I mean, mean, yeah. Yeah, I I mean, again, I, I... Something could, I mean, things could injury. happen. An injury could happen, like injuries that 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 changes the calculus a little bit. But again, it's it's this is why I f- particularly struggle to kind of get excited about basketball kind of yet because you the know season doesn't what, matter. What, what is to get what out there matter? and say it. actually you, you could make an argument that this is in some sense without the strength of LeBron on a team. I mean, Lakers are going to be fine, but they're not beating Golden State. This may be the easiest title for Golden State to win this year. Title or out of the West? Title. Title altogether. Yeah. Title altogether. Just because they won't be no playing LeBron, LeBron they won't be in the playing, finals. They won't be playing LeBron in the finals. It's not even clear that LeBron will get to the uh, Western Conference Championship game. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, if you're Golden State, are you afraid of Toronto or Milwaukee or Indiana? I mean, come on. Yeah. That's not yeah. even. That's not particularly competitive. And well, so, so they're, they're, they're 270 to come out of the West, and they're probably not a whole hell of a lot off in 270 to win the whole thing. <laughs> you're right. Minus yeah. 160 to, to win the whole thing. So they do think they have some some risk playing that finals. But, okay, so there's – and, of course, LeBron is out right now, so the Lakers are, of course, you know, diving 3-7 and seven without LeBron. All right, uh, one other sport. I know Eric's been watching probably in the middle of the night, the Australian Open. What's happened down there so far, Eric? Well, you know, the big news is that, you know, uh, that's that surprising given he just came back. Andy Murray lost in the first round, although played a very good match against Batista Gu, who's the 14 seed. He lost in five. Um, Andy Murray's announced he's retiring. If he can make it to Wimbledon, he'd like to play Wimbledon. That's obviously in the summer. He may not make it to then. Um, Djokovic looks great. Federer looks great. Nadal looks great. 
And so it's really, you know, it's the big three again. And I don't see any reason to believe it won't be one of those three. It's not impossible. But again, for someone else to be it, you have to beat at least two of those three. And that I don't see happening. Is Serena going to walk to the women's title? No, definitely not. There's a lot of depth. Look, here's a player who could beat her right now. One is Naomi Osaka, who beat her in the U.S. Open final. But when Sloane Stevens is on... She has shown that she can defeat anybody. And this appears from the first two rounds to be one of those Sloan Stevens is really on tournaments. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, really? And also, Petra Kvitova just won a recent tournament, beat three or four <laughs> other players, top ten players. So, no, actually, I don't think Serena's making the finals in this one. I think there's four or five other players that could easily beat her. And I don't think she has the consistency right now to win enough matches to get mm-hmm. to the finals. How many professional sports announcers are more educated on the current state of the Australian Open than our own? Eric Bradlow. I'm not sure. Let's change gears to a little football. Moneyball matchups. All right, guys. Next to last Moneyball matchups of the year. We only have two games to run down. I think that means everybody needs to call their games. Tell us how you're feeling. Eric, you can start us out. Okay, so actually the first thing I'm going to say is I'm not even talking about the outcomes of the games. I'm surprised that the overs are only in the mid-50s. These, both these teams played each other during the regular season. The total score was over 80 in both games. So I'm first of all, I'm taking the Regression over. to the mean, come I on. I know, but uh, regressing back to below to 55, you want them to go from 80 to 55? No, that's wait, a, at zero degrees, you still think they're going to hit the over? Yeah, that's the only thing that I would say would uh, argue for the under is the, the weather in case. But either way, if I have to take the winners, I'm going to go with the teams that I thought were best all season long. I'm I'm taking the Saints and the Chiefs. I think those are the have been the best teams in their respective conferences. I see no reason to go against it. Um, so I'm going to pick okay. Saints and the Chiefs. All right, let me just set the table. The lines last last night I saw lines were both around three, so three and a half for the Saints and three for KC, which is basically all home field. That's, and I'm, I'm going to take. And I'm, sta- I'm, I'm going to saying even against the line, okay, I'm good. taking the Saints and the Chiefs. Okay, Adi. Well, I'm going to go with the Pats. Yeah, yep. yeah. I can't believe I'm doing it, but I'm doing it. So why? Um, the only thing, my own reason is, is I think it's going to be cold. I think it's going to be less passing. And I think, based on what I've heard, I think Patriots are more well-rounded. And what about in the NFC? In the, oh, in the warm dome, <laughs> the dome of New Orleans. Uh, uh, nothing interesting to say other than I'm, I'm picking the Saints. Because okay. they're, the I think, probably the best team. All right. All right, Shane so I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to take uh, Kansas City to win, but I think it's going to be super oh, close. I think, I, I think uh, New England covers. Wow. Yeah, All right. yeah. No, that's, but I think it's. I, 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 I think it's the point. It's going to be like you know. It's going to be like a twenty-one twenty game or something like All that. Right, that'd be fun. Um, and then I think New Orleans uh, smokes L.A. Actually, okay. I think New Orleans rule uh, covers uh, the spread. Wow, smokes. Okay, I, I'm. I'm going to go. I, I want the Chiefs so bad. They're just so much fun. I'm pulling for them hard. But I. But I'm. I, I think I'm. It's like Alabama. I'm going to put pick Alabama until proven otherwise. Even though I did pick Clemson this year, I'm going to go with the Pats until proven otherwise. Too much playoff experience. Too much. It's yep. just too much to overcome. Pat Mahomes' first playoff, and then on the other side, I, I'm with you, New Orleans. I'm going with New best Orleans, team. best team in the league. I believe in Breeze. Uh, the Rams. I heard the Rams were getting tipped on Cowboy plays. They weren't yeah. quite as good as uh, they looked on the field. All right, a lot of fun this weekend. It'll be interesting to see who makes the Super Bowl. We'll come back and talk about it next Wednesday. Between now and then, guys, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.